mask uh, efficacy. Um, I think it's there. I don't know. I can't quantify it and there's no risk. So uh, I highly recommend it. W wearing them in your car by yourself doesn't make sense. Wearing them outside, I'm not sure makes I've sense. Seen, I've seen lots of people in uh, in cars driving by themselves with masks on. Symbolic gestures, I think, Stephen. Yeah, it's, it's look at look at our, uh, we're all scared. It's been, a, it's been a scary 18 months and Fear is fear is a, uh, a dangerous confounder for cognitive dissonance and for good, clear thinking. The following is a conversation with Stephen Quay. This is Stephen's second time on the podcast. He first came on to talk about the COVID nineteen lab leak hypothesis. When we first spoke, this hypothesis was still considered a conspiracy theory by most. In the three months since, however, the idea that COVID nineteen accidentally leaked from a lab in Wuhan has gained a lot more traction. Stephen and I again discuss the evidence and the public dialogue surrounding the issue. If you like this conversation, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. You know, surprisingly, Taiwan has done so well for 16 months in terms of uh, of, of not getting the infection, but um, the vaccine has not been as readily available as it, perhaps it might have. And so we're having a little spurge of, of COVID. So uh, my daughter, who's been doing uh, in-person school for a year, literally, uh, as of today, is now uh, doing a, a Zoom, you know, uh, remote learning for the last three weeks of school. So is that is that the first point. time? Is that the first time? I mean, was Taiwan originally not doing school via Zoom, and now it is. So what happened was um, we we were able to stop the virus coming into Taiwan literally January first, twenty twenty. That's a that's a great story if you have time for it sometime to explain how that happened. But so then Chinese New Year happened. So two weeks of, without school for the kids, no China, because of Chinese New Year. And then the school elected to keep them at home for two weeks after that. So they got a full month uh, without being face to face. And then they've been in, they've been in person ever since. You know, they mask up. They mask up. They have to wear masks outdoors, which I think is silly. But uh, in any case, they wear masks all the time. Um, but now they're back to remote learning. Oh, you said masks out, outdoors are silly. Are masks, um, is, have we found out yet whether COVID is nearly as transmissible outdoors as it is indoors? A study of 200 uh, contact tracing. So 200 cases where human to human tracing was done and then the, the environment was looked at. 198 were uh, indoors, two were outdoors. So it barely, it's barely transmissible outdoors. That's insane. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, and kind of is that... kind of, It kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense. Why does it make sense? Because it's a dose-related process. Uh, you know, outdoors, there's actually wind all the time. You don't even notice it sometimes, but the air is, is really moving very, very well. Whereas indoors, no matter what, what sort of ventilation, mechanical ventilation system you have, it's hard to replicate what goes on outdoors in terms of air, air changes. 
So um, indoors, you can very quickly build up a, an aerosol concentration that's effective, that's a, that's sufficient to cause an infection. Whereas outdoors, you know, you, you know, you're walking through it, and you've got the rest of the world around you. So, and and then to the extent that the sun is out, um, the sun is very damaging for the virus. Um, yeah, so, well, because um, because I mentioned that to you last time that there was a study that said, well, that suggested that because it wasn't as transmissible outdoors, this pointed to the idea that it had mutated indoors, which would obviously uh, reinforce the lab leak hypothesis. What do you think about that? It's a stretch. Um, but uh, I mean, it's consistent with it, but it, but, it, but it's a stretch because uh, I, I think I think in, in, the, in, in the animal processes, you know, they're also indoors in the sense that they're in bat caves uh, right. or they're, you know, they're in, in, I don't know, close uh, units, right, of animal to animal living together in uh, in uh, some sort of a residential like environment. That's a stretch, but so so a lot of viruses, uh, particularly bat borne viruses, would have that same uh, issue that they're not as transmissible uh, under UV rays. Is that correct? I think that you. I think I think you could say that all viruses, because of, because of the nature of chemistry and photochemistry, uh, are going to be damaged by the UV. Mm. Well, quite a lot's happened since our last conversation. Yes. Uh, for me, I was most interested in Robert Redfield's interview with CNN. I assume you watched that. I did. How did you feel when you were watching that? What did it? Um, what's the significance oh. of that that interview? Do you think? Uh, he, he, you know, I don't know him personally, but I, I, you know, he seems like a a very reasonable person. I think I think the way he described. Um, the 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 likelihood of 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 it, of it being from a laboratory was pretty high based on you know the pre-adoption I think was probably the thing he focused on the most but um, it, and and I I guess maybe the if I overlaid you know some social on it or psychology on it um, the nonchalantness with which he had you know he did it was sort of uh, was endearing. He almost looked like I don't want to have to be the one telling you this, but. This, yeah, is, exactly. this is most yeah. likely what it looks like. Redfield said that the virus may have, in fact, begun circulating in September of 2020, sorry, of 2019. Do yeah. you agree with him? And if so, why? Well, it's, uh, it's so, so here's the data. So the, the Lancet has published, has the, the first uh, published case in the Lancet peer review paper, December 1st, which means they would have caught it two weeks earlier to end up in a hospital. So now you're at November 15th. Um, and then when you when you look at uh, at the, the biological diversity and you try to identify what's the the uh, the least uh, the, the least common denominator or the, or the or the ancestor, you get about three about three mutations back from the current strains. So that's three two weeks per two weeks per generation, six weeks. So you know you're getting back pretty close to September first. So um, I think that I, I'm sure he pulled that out of the air. I'm not sure he was. Uh, I, I'm not sure that was science based, but I think but anything from December, from September to mid mid November, is perfectly acceptable. But it's based. So he was basing that on the how long it takes for each mutation to take place and uh, what he was seeing in the virus. Is that correct? I'm going to be very strict and, and tell you that he didn't tell us what is what it was based on. Mm. All he said that right. So if is, you if you look at the interview, he just said September first, and he didn't say why. Is there information that uh, State Department or governmental agencies? Is there information they would have, which whether, I don't know, for national security reasons, or I don't even know what other reasons, but are there reasons they would keep information from us? Well, I, I, I don't doubt that 
you know, governments know more about other governments and what's going on in other countries than they tell their people. And uh, I mean, there, there are strategic reasons not to tell people uh, because you, then you give away your, your methods and sources of how you got the information. And the information may have some sort of leverage or strategic value in a private conversation at the state to state level. So um, I, think it, I think it's probably good governance to, to uh, be able to surveil other countries, to gather information on other countries, and not necessarily have to share them with the, uh, with the people. It's not in the public interest. But because he was the former head of the CDC, there's a good chance then that he has access to information that hasn't been publicly disclosed. Oh yes, absolutely. I didn't. I didn't make mm-hmm. the connection that you were trying to connect those two. Yes, absolutely. Yes. No. He has. He has more information than almost anybody um, that's within the government. Because as a head of CDC, he would be given. He would. He would ask, and he would be given uh, everything that's necessary to uh, try to, you know, help the public health of Americans in, with this pandemic. Do you think that interview was a seminal moment in the dialogue around this? Because before that interview and when we had our conversation, I've got to admit, I was almost I was almost a bit paranoid about being thought of as a conspiracy theorist or whatever for this idea. And not many people subscribe to it as an idea. But do you feel like that interview was the the moment when the lab leak hypothesis switched from being considered a conspiracy theory to the mainstream idea? You know, I can't. I, I'm not sure I can measure that. You know, public sentiment concept that you're that you're describing there. It's certainly one of the the most important, you know, recent events that I think has has made the public aware that this is not a cut and dried situation where it came from nature and everybody just believes it and all the evidence points to that. Um, you know, there have been a hundred of us or fifty of us, you know, some some small, very small number of people who since February, March, April of last year have said, look, there are things about this virus, things about this uh, pandemic that don't square with a zoonosis, that, that jump from animals. So um, it, it's, one, it's one of several, I think. I think um, it, you know, I've, been, I've been involved with 26 other, uh, 25 others, or 26 of us, <clears throat> who've written uh, two open letters, one that was uh, published in the Wall Street Journal, and the other was online. Uh, supporting the idea that this this investigation the WHO did was inadequate. They weren't given the resources they needed. The people were not forensic scientists, which you almost need to be in some of these situations, and that we needed to continue to look at it. Um, I sort of have taken the next step in my own personal analysis to come to the conclusions that it's sort of beyond a reasonable doubt that it, that it came from the laboratory. Um, so, but yes, it was gratifying to see him say that, I think is, is probably the best way. The Wall Street Journal, more than any other news outlet seems to be most, well, at least I'd say, I was going to say more sympathetic to the lab leak hypothesis, but really they're just being straight up objective. Is that what you think as well? Like the Wall Street Journal seems to be covering this story better than most. Yeah, I think they've done a great, I think they've done a good job of, 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 of letting people have facts and, and, and things and, and making some conclusions around them. The Washington Post has done a pretty good job as well. I think the New York Times is probably the, the least uh, objective around this topic. Um, and, 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 a lot of the, and a lot of the criticism there are primarily one of silence as opposed to saying things, you know, particularly pointing to a, to a wild, uh, to a zoonosis process. But they've just been silent on so many of the important findings around this that uh, it's been disappointing. You're a very objective guy, and I keep asking you quite emotional questions. But was it quite frustrating when I was watching the interview with Robert Redfield? It was quite frustrating to see 
the I forget his name, but the the doctor that San, uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay Gupta. That's it. It was he must know better than most uh, whether it's the lab leak hypothesis is valid or not. And to almost watch him feigning surprise when Robert Redfield said that, I I was a bit frustrated uh, hearing that. What did you think? So Sanji and I both went to the University of Michigan. Uh, different times, obviously, I'm a little bit older than he is, but we're both you know, U of M medical graduates. Um, yeah, I mean, it looked a little bit, I have to say it looked a little bit staged, um, but uh, yeah, his, his sort of feigned surprise. And, and then when he, he was interviewed later just with the other, uh, the other folks on, uh, on, the, on, the main, on the main station there. And, um, you know, he's, 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 he's now, in, he's now in, in broadcast journalism. So I think breaking a story and showing and, and, and emphasizing that it is a bro that is new and 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 unique is is part of part of his new uh, career. So mm. I think it's kind of expected. Mm. Yeah, I wasn't I, I wasn't surprised, but just more yeah. frustrated. I reckon you and I were skeptical of the WHO report uh, before it was even released. But from a completely objective point of view, was there anything that the WHO investigation found out that we didn't know before? Well, it's it's there's so there's a 120 page report, and then there's what are called an annex, which is um, you know additional information and, and all the dirty details, and that's I think 194 pages. So we've got about 400 pages of new material, um, and it's quite quite striking how much detail there is in there. They just I mean they just really did a lot of deep 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 work on patients and on the on the on the uh, markets and the animals in the markets and the animals in Hubei province and the animals in Wuhan and the animals uh, around China and all that said that it's an immense level of new data that we never had before but an immense level of new data and on then, the least likely hypothesis well yeah then the most remarkable thing is so <clears throat> they have immense data around sampling and details and which week it appeared and everything inside the, inside the wet market. But they agree with my analysis that every virus that was found in the wet market, whether it was from a human who got sick or from the surface, surface of frozen food or from the, the drains down below, every virus was a descendant of what I have identified as the first patient, which was uh, WIV-04 at the PLA hospital uh, in Wuhan, about four miles, four kilometers, um, whatever, a mile and a half from the one Institute of Virology. So all of the infections in the wet market that they talked about uh, were downstream from that. So they had to, so this PLA patient is the first and they're, they're later. Uh, they talked about another market, uh, but there again, they have exactly the same process. This patient, this one patient in the other market, as they call it, uh, is also downstream. So there's, there was absolutely no evidence uh, anywhere near the market of a patient that is closer uh, to the bat virus patients, to the bat virus sequences than the one at the, uh, at the PLA hospital. Mm. So I don't know. It was pretty impressive. To this day, just to reiterate, there's still no animal that's been identified as the reservoir host or a potential intermediary host either, is there? Uh, there's not. So let's let's go back to May of 2020, when uh, Dr. Christian Anderson and five other very prominent virologists published a letter uh, entitled "The Proximal Origin of SARS-CoV-2," 
in which they, uh, they, they, they talked about all the reasons it should come from nature. Now, one of the things, because it is sort of unique because of the fear and cleavage site and a lot of other aspects, they said one of, their, one of their predictions was that it would be found in very high density in the intermediate population, in the intermediate host population. It would have to be in very high density to have made as many adaptions as it did. So what's a measure of the density? Well, if you look at MERS, uh, the camel, the camel virus in, in, in 2015 in the Middle East, uh, about 85 to 90 percent of camels in the Middle East have have that virus. 85 to 90 percent. So that's one standard. Um, go back to SARS-CoV-1 in 2004. It again is in about 90 percent of all of the civet cats in the markets. So very high density in, in the intermediate host in both cases. In the in the WHO report, they tested 80,000 animals. 80,000 animals, and they didn't find a single case of SARS-CoV-2. The, the way a statistician treats that is you take a number like 80,000, you divide by three, so let's say it's 30,000, just to be, to be easy. So, and then, and then what is the percentage? What's well, one over 30,000? It's about 0.00004%. So that would be the incidence of it in the population to come up with a zero out of 80,000. What's the probability of getting zero out of 80,000? Well, it can only be this dense in the population to get that result. So we're talking about, you know, five or six zeros and a four versus 90%. It's so if the WHO, you know, if I if I'd asked somebody to make the case for, for it not coming from nature, uh, the WHO's research would be the first place I'd go. So all these statistical yeah. points just um, are unbelievably compelling that this was from a lab and uh, not from a natural zoonosis. I was reading, there's an article in, I think it's called The Wire magazine, which does a really good job of, it kind of does what you did, but in a more, it's more designed for the layman. In that article, they were talk, there was a quote from uh, Dr. Shi Sheng Li, where uh, in an interview before the outbreak, she said the corona research in her laboratory is conducted in BSL-2 and BSL-3 laboratories, um, which I found uh, amazing because so they're conducting extremely dangerous gain of function experiments and they're not even using the BSL-4 lab that they have at their disposal. What did you make of that? Well, I think it's, uh, I think it's, I think it was maybe expected. So just to be sure, <clears throat> BSLA 4 laboratories are really hard to work in. Um, I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating. You, you probably spend a, an hour getting into the lab and an hour getting out uh, having to gown up and, and all those sorts of things. So um, nobody works in BLSA 4 unless they absolutely have to. And, they, you know, so you there's this overlay of, of kind of not wanting to do that. Um, so then you're down at, you, know, you go down to BSLA 3. Uh, but, for, but for many of the things, you know, you can use BLSA 2. Uh, but the problem is, for example, circulation systems in the building can take a BLSA 3 laboratory uh, that's upwind for the for the circuit for the air conditioning from a BLSA two lab, and you can you can get it down there. One of the four scientists who got uh, SARS-CoV one wasn't working on it. It was being worked on down the lab, down the down the hall from from this 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 person, and probably got it through the air circulation. So, um, but this is just insane how how dangerous this is. Then I mean that just points to how dangerous these experiments are to be conducting. Uh, and the fact they that you don't are, even need to be dangerous. you don't even need to be in the laboratory to get sick. That's how how secure would a BSL two lab be? Like what what would it compare to? 
Well, I mean, I think I think it's now public knowledge what the typical uh, what the typical analogy is. Um, it's it's about the same level as your dentist's office. And they're conducting gain of function experiments with juice stop viruses at a BLSA two. The BLSA two laboratory is the same as a as a dental lab as a dental office. So you you wear gloves. You sometimes wear a mask. You sometimes have a hood. Uh, but you're not you know you're not changing out of street clothes. Yeah, it just it's just bizarre that. This is allowed to happen. I mean, how, how did no one see an outbreak? Well, I guess they did see an outbreak coming. That's why they put a moratorium on it. It just makes you really resent the scientific inclination to play God. Yeah, it does. I mean, and, and um, yeah, I was going to say it's embarrassing to be a scientist in this context. There, 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 there's, it, it is just inconsolable that you would uh, that you would do this work, I think. It's my opinion. Is there a connection between Anthony Fauci and the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Well, so uh, Anthony Fauci has been uh, the head of the uh, uh, National uh, Allergy and Infectious Disease uh, Unit of the National Institute of Health for, I want to say, 40 years. I mean, he was he was there when HIV was breaking out in 81. So um, to the extent that grants under his multi-billion dollar uh, foundation or institute uh, are funded, you know he's on the top of a of a of a hierarchy of folks. So um, when the gain of function uh, moratorium was in place, uh, a grant was put in from EcoHealth Alliance, which is an NGO in New York, uh, to do certain kinds of collection, uh, studying modification, and and then and then gain of function and humanized mice studies uh, at the one institute as as a subcontractor uh, to EcoHealth. So to the extent that my taxes on April 15th go to the NIH and then the NIH goes to EcoHealth and then EcoHealth goes to the WIV, uh, there is that connection there. So he gave money to EcoHealth Alliance for gain of function research during the moratorium? Uh, yes, it appears. It, well, I, again, I, I want to be really careful in my language. No, so no, yeah, of course. The institute, that, the institute that he is in charge of, the institute he is head of, uh, grant made a grant to EcoHealth involving what would be what I think everyone would consider was gain of function research during the moratorium in the U.S. around that work. So he's there used a, he's used Peter so Dashak and EcoHealth Alliance to bypass the moratorium. Potentially, well, that's a conclusion. That's a conclusion. Yes. Yep. The uh, the moratorium had a uh, had an exemption clause where either the head of the NIH, Francis Collins, or or uh, or uh, Fauci could uh, allow allow gain of function research if in their opinion it met a national a national uh, security need or I can't remember what the exact language was but there there was an exception inside there uh, and we don't have a check on the box but it's believed that the only way this grant could have been done was through that exception did you see him being interviewed by or being questioned by Rand Paul the other day I did what did you think of that um, I was I was I was disappointed in the way he testified. Just for the listeners, uh, Anthony Fauci was being questioned by Rand Paul, who is himself a doctor, so he understands the science almost as well as Fauci would. Uh, and Fauci asked him whether the NIH had funded the Wuhan Institute of Virology's gain of function research, which is looking as it led to uh, this pandemic. And Fauci said categorically, "No, the National Institute of Health." didn't uh, fund that research, but well, you 
what it's looking like is, um, as we said, it's just a way of lawyering around what he's actually done. I think the only way for that to be completely truthful is to is to put in the um, is to say that while it, while the NIH did not fund the WIV, the NIH did fund EcoHealth, which funded the WIV. Mm. Which is which is it's not it's not a stand up it's not a stand up way to talk. Yeah, if you subcontract someone to use your own money, you are still funding what they use their money for. Do a majority of people in the scientific community still favour a natural zoonosis? Do you think, or do they the majority of them now subscribe to the lab leak hypothesis publicly anyway? Uh, number one, I don't know. Number two, I'm not big on scientists taking surveys about what is truth or not. Mm. Um, famous story of uh, Albert Einstein in the 30s in, you know, uh, in, in Hitler's pre-war Germany. And 100 scientists wrote a letter saying that his theory was wrong. And, he, and mm. the journalist asked him, what do you think, Professor Einstein, of these 100 physicists saying you're wrong? And Einstein's response was, well, you know, if I was wrong, it would only take one of them. Yeah. So I'm not big on surveys. I think so. OK, so having said that. Um, I believe that uh, I mean clearly the clearly the 18 people or so that signed that signed that science letter uh, a week ago Friday um, were um, of the mind of the mind that the investigation should continue. So I think that was that was a really important statement. And of course the the number one coronavirus virologist in America, perhaps in the world, Worst case, he's number two to, to, to the Batwoman, uh, Dr. Shi at the Wuhan Institute. Ralph Barrick uh, was, a, was, a senior, uh, was a senior author of that letter. So I think that's pretty telling that, um, and he's, he's, been, he's actually been reasonably consistent since May of last year in, in an Italian interview. Uh, he basically said, look, at, um, because of the way this coronavirus research can be done now, there's no way to know whether it's natural or not by looking at the virus. You have to go in the lab and see the records. That's the only way you can do it. Probably over three months ago, I would have had all the faith in the world in scientists. And I still have, obviously, faith in the scientific process, as I'm sure you do, but not necessarily in the truthfulness of scientists themselves. I mean, I've, I've made a point of getting various views on this topic. I had, uh, before I interviewed you, I actually had a guy called Mark Pellegrini come on the podcast, and uh, he was staunchly against uh, the lab leak hypothesis. And I'm not sure if you listened, but after our conversation, I also interviewed Professor Peter Doherty. Do you know who that is? I, I'm not sure I do. I, but I, I apologize, I missed that. He's he's actually a Nobel Prize winner and the, the patron and namesake of Australia's most highly regarded virology institute, the Doherty Institute. And even he was very defensive when I brought up your Bayesian analysis and the lab leak hypothesis. But it turns out that his institute, the Doherty Institute, received $3.2 million in funding from the Jack Ma Foundation during the pandemic and a further $2 million from TikTok, both of which are obviously Chinese companies. I didn't bring that up with him because it seemed, yeah. I don't know, a bit indecorous or something. But I guess what I'm getting at is it's really disturbing to think how pervasive the influence of the CCP is. Just how, just how far-reaching is their influence, do you think, in the entire scientific community? Oh, I think, I think they've done, um, uh, masterful is almost the word I would call it, but yes. So um, the journals, so Lancet, Nature, to, to a less, least extent science, um, have largely been uh, co-opted, is the best word to say it, by, uh, by 
various ways via the via the, the Chinese government. Um, at the university level, um, the, the the direct grants for scientists in, inside American and, and Australian and European institutions is immense. But a second and actually maybe more important financially level is that you know the universities have this this structure of tuition where for a foreign student it's you know two three four I mean huge multiple of the in-state or in-country tuition um, and the Chinese just send as many as many students as can be taken so indirectly you're sitting there you know you're the you're the CFO of Harvard or something and you're looking at your budget and you're saying okay. Oh you know, 80% of my budget is coming from out of state, out of state, out of country students from China. Uh, and so whether, and that just, that just has an effect. And I know Australia has a bit of a problem in that. If I've seen some journalist articles around the, the magnitude of the foreign, specifically Chinese uh, foreign students in, in Australian universities. Uh, and it just can't help but have an effect. That's fascinating. So rather than you'd think charging international students more to attend your university would give other countries less influence over your university. But in fact, the opposite is true because the university is then receiving three times as much money from those countries and from their their citizens. Aside from it actually gaining traction in the public dialogue, has the argument for the lab leak hypothesis gotten stronger since we last spoke? Uh, A little bit. I mean, it it, it was really, really quite strong. Uh, there've been a couple a couple pieces of new uh, information, uh, including <laughs> this amazing group called Drastic. Of course, um, most I'm a member of it, but but most of the other people are on no. <laughs> They're completely, you know, completely uh, uh, avatars, as it were. But um, they've come up with three amazing PhD and master's thesis done at the WI uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology over the last six or eight years that just walk you through all of the possible. Um, uh, findings that you would need to have to help create SARS-CoV-2. It's not, there's not a direct tie-in, although there might be in one of them. We're, we're still investigating. It's only been available in English uh, four or five days. So, um, yeah, it's, again, that's just, it's just a masterful piece of work. Uh, of course, all of the work, I think, I think it's disingenuous when people say there's, you know, there's uh, no evidence for a lab leak in the context of, of doing 80,000 specimens from nature and not finding a single case. That is evidence, that is data, and there's a way to interpret that data. You run it through a statistical analysis and you say, the incidence in the world has to be less than this to get that result, and that number is so low, it's, it's a zoonosis we've never seen before, uh, that, that kind of thing. So, so there's, there's, there's that. Um, I mean, I did a, I did a little uh, a new analysis myself that kind of, Again, it's it's sort of a, a completely sort of new way of looking at it, but it, it points to the fact that, I mean, I can now almost time the experiment when the furin cleavage site was put in the virus to sometime around uh, around the end of August or September of last year of, of twenty nineteen. Excuse me. How were you able um, to determine that? So so it's a bit complicated, but let me walk you through it. There's a spot on the spike protein called six fourteen. It's just. It's a six, it's nothing sexy. It's the 614th amino acid from, from, from the left-hand side of the, of the protein. Um, when you look at every coronavirus in nature, everyone in nature, everyone, all, all, all 58 out of 58. So that's a high probability. That's under 2%. Uh, 90% of them must have this. They all have D. They all have this same amino acid, D. Okay. 
Um, so all 58 have D in that position. All 58 do not have a furin cleavage site. Okay, so so they don't have that. So the first the first the, PLA, the first patient with with the coronavirus with the coronavirus at the PLA hospital has a virus that has a furin cleavage site for the first time that that's ever been seen and a D at position six one fourteen position six fourteen excuse me. So um, fast forward three generations later, that D gets changed to a G. I'm sure it was probably almost accidental. That's how that's how uh, evolution works. Accidents that then get selected for. So it was accident change from D to D to uh, G. Um, it only takes one of the three nucleus to do that. So it truly was a single a single mistake. Uh, but now the G form is 90% of all the cases in the world. So at the same time that <clears throat> coronaviruses, for reasons I don't know, only God knows, for coronaviruses likes like a D in position 614, because they all have it, everyone has it. Um, in the presence of a furin cleavage site, it's not compatible. So in the laboratory, what happens if you grow, if you grow SARS-CoV-2 in the laboratory, it will either kick out the furin cleavage site and get rid of it, or it'll change D to G. So Okay, so once you say that, so how could how could a virus? So it took it took three passages in humans to go from D to G. So that was a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure on that spot. And we now know we now know why because it it does some really crazy stuff where the spike protein stands up with the D, but it falls down with the G and it makes it makes it much more uh, transmissible. So there's a there's an explanation for why it really likes G when there's a furin cleavage site. When there is a furin cleavage site, it likes D for some reason. So, um, so it's it's literally impossible for this virus to have jumped in animals. It could only have jumped three times, is my analysis. Artificial. That's why I come. Mm. That's why I come to September first. And even in the laboratory, it gets kicked out. So, so I'm saying, what probably? I mean, this must have been sort of introduced the end of the summer. The furin cleavage site introduced the end of the summer to a virus that had a D, because every virus in the whole world has D. There are no G's in the world anywhere. Right. So even in a laboratory, mm. you're always going to use a D. Uh, and then it didn't like it. And then, and then so it, 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 you know, it, it very quickly, it jumped to humans and then it kicked it out. So if it had been in the lab even three or four months earlier, it would have, you would have, the first human would have gotten a G furin cleavage site, not a D furin cleavage oh, yeah. site. Could you just yeah. for the listeners as well, remind us what the significant, what a furin cleavage site is and why that's indicative of a, uh, SARS-CoV-2 coming from uh, a laboratory rather than from a natural zoonosis. Yep. So the spike protein uh, has two main functions. Uh, the, the the function of the of the first piece of it, the left hand piece called the S1 piece, is to interact and bind with the cell uh, to get to get to get really close, so you then can do the next step. Um, so it's you know it's basically a bear hug with the cell, and that requires the S1 unit. Uh, in the furin cleavage site. I misspoke, I misspoke, the ACE2, the ACE2. The S2, the other part, the right-hand side of the spike protein um, is responsible for coming apart, unfolding, and basically injecting a, a, a like a hypodermic needle through the membrane so that the RNA can pour into the cell, take over the cell and reproduce itself. So S1, S2, they have to be cleaved. They have to be separated in, in order to do that. So before the furin cleavage site was put in place, there is a site called the S2 prime site, which is which is a little bit to the right of the of where the furin cleavage site is, 
And it's it's identified by a couple enzymes. They're not very they're not found on on human cells very often. It's a it's a very limited uh, a limited repertoire of enzymes that can activate it. Because remember, the virus has to do two things: it has to bind, and then it has to be cleaved and and, and activated to go into the cell. You can do the activation ahead of time, so it actually can come to the cell pre pre activated. So the, the the beauty from a transmission point of view, from a killing point of view of the furin cleavage site, is it opens up. Uh, the sources of doing that of doing that cut that's so necessary for the infection, and so in fact it, it, it generates a site that's recognized by furin, which is a very common enzyme in human lung tissue, very common enzyme in human nasal tissue, and so it's the perfect, uh, as you know, as I said in some of my Bayesian analysis, scientists in eleven different laboratories since 1992 have put a furin cleavage site in cells on purpose to see what happens. And in all cases, it's more transmissible, more infective, and more lethal. It, it, it never doesn't, it never disappoints in that context. So, so that's the significance of having the furin cleavage site. Uh, 2000 coronaviruses of the same class, zero furin cleavage sites. They just, they don't have them. Um, and it might actually be, be because it is too deadly, too infective, um, you know, so, oh, so, they, that's viruses, so, like, so viruses like Ebola don't take over the world mm. because they kill so many people that they, they don't get the chance to, to pass on. Right. So, so it doesn't. So, so coronaviruses, when they occur naturally, don't have furin cleavage sites, generally speaking, because, well, actually, 1999 times out of 2000, they don't, because that prevents the virus from uh, spreading as much because the the host dies before it can infect someone else. That's right. Yeah, it, wow. it is so effective that it effectively kill, kills the host. So there's a fine line. I don't know if you have the story of Goldilocks and the three bears in, in, in yeah, Australia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, one is- Just the, with an Australian accent. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so the soup's too cold and then the soup's too mm. hot and then the soup's just right. So so to be a pandemic virus, you got to be right in the middle. You got to be not so weak that you don't get slammed by the immune system and wiped out. Or not so deadly that you you don't have time to pass it on. Why, why and, is and, and the way it works in humans, of course, if you end up in the hospital, your chances of passing it on goes way down because you're in a room by yourself, you're isolated. So um, asymptomatic uh, viruses are really are really the best. And I have another important point on that if you if you want me to go absolutely there, right? yep. So there's this there's this protein called ORF three A in the coronavirus. ORF O R F open reading frame. That science talk for this looks like a protein, but I don't have a clue what it does. <laughs> so, so it, what it what it means is it it has the the first it has methionine, which is the first letter of every protein. So, and then it's a bunch of a bunch of amino acids after that, but nobody knows what it does. But um, so, but but the Wuhan Institute did a lot of work on on ORF three A, and especially in one of these theses that just came undone, just came translated here in the last week or so. Uh, and what they found was that that uh, ORF3A is responsible for doing something with a nuclear membrane and suppressing interferon. So it makes the cell make less interferon. Why is that important? When when you when you get infected with a virus and you you, you know you sweat and you have a fever and you're red and you're you know you're just streaming and you you're, and you feel sick like everything is coming apart at the, at the seams. It's not the virus mostly. It's interferon. So when your body gets in a virus infection, it wants to make interferon because the interferon turns on your immune system and fights the virus. By suppressing interferon, you make the patients more asymptomatic. 
Right. By so suppressing we, we, the interferon, you reduce the immune response, so it makes it more more deadly. Right. So with a so the furin cleavage site without the ORF, what is it? ORF eight? Did you say? ORF three A. ORF three A. Without the ORF three A uh, alteration, it would not have spread as well as it did because it would have killed the host before they, well, the majority of hosts well, before I, they were able. I, to- I, I think. I think. I think the best way, the best evidence, the best way I'd like to frame it for your for your listeners is to say. If if everybody became symptomatic within forty eight hours of getting a coronavirus infection, it not it would not have spread this way, right. because because when you feel as bad as you feel with a lot of interferon in your bloodstream, you don't go to work, you don't go out of your bedroom, you lay in bed, you know, and pray that you won't die. So so the fact that that was not happening allowed people to be in the community for six, eight, ten days, spreading it like crazy um, uh, without without having symptoms. So it's it's more the spreading capability than the than the lethality. So it's just a perfectly made biological killer. Uh, your words, not mine, but I don't disagree. <laughs> I keep trying to get emotional answers out of you, Stephen. Uh, what's your opinion on the frozen food origin that the WHO investigation proposed? Well, there was frozen food in the uh, in the uh, the wet market. Uh, incredible, de- incredible details, and they and they did exactly what I wanted them to do. It was kind of, I, I was, I, I just, I'm so shocked. But anyway, so they have they have all these frozen food samples in the Hunan uh, seafood market that was closed at, at the end of December, January first, uh, and so uh, they found fragments of the downstream virus on some of the food samples, and then they tell you what farms these came from. And then they went to these farms and they tested all the animals at the farms. And lo and behold, none of the animals at the farms had any of the virus. <laughs> and yet they so, still proposed so it. So, you know, the, what's, what's that? And yet they still proposed it as a more likely origin story than the lab leak. Even though there's, just for the, so the listeners know as well, there's an average of, except for the except for the, the period of 2014 to 2018 when the moratorium was in place, there's been an average of one lab leak per year uh, from, from these laboratories. That's correct. That we know about, and and that we and, know about. and and there's an issue of underreporting. So it's a minimum of one per year. Probably so at least at least, at least one per year. Yeah, because you. That's what it's good frame it. Yeah. So just to reiterate, what would you say are the three strongest, or perhaps the most understandable arguments for the layman that suggest this was a lab leak? There are five. All previous, uh, all previous epidemics. Have a have a period of time of months to years, in which the um, the virus is practicing jumping into humans. It doesn't have all the things it needs to be a transmissible infection. It often has what enough to to make one person sick, but not enough to then transfer to another person. But that one person who gets sick is left with antibodies to to that virus. So they they fought that virus. So, um, you know, hospitals are like, you know, you know, that uncle that doesn't throw anything away. So every blood sample that's ever taken is sitting in a hospital freezer somewhere. So one of the classic things that epidemiologists do is they go in and they test archived specimens now with a test against this new virus. Uh, With MERS, with SARS-CoV-1, they find, you know, one to four or five percent of the specimens in the refrigerator show evidence that this virus is in the community uh, before they've done it, before they, before, before the the epidemic, again, the, the the WHO report takes my little analysis, which was which was uh, I think I think 1,900 specimens that I could find. Uh, they take it up to 10,000. 
So there are so they tested 10,000 archive specimens from before December 2019, and they found how many, Julius? What's the number? What's the number? Zero. They found zero. <laughs> zero out of 10,000. So that's point one is not having this circulating in the community like previous pandemics is very unusual. Um, point number two is how well adapted it was in humans. This is one of the things that I think Dr. D Dr. Redmond talked about. So <clears throat> when the virus is practicing uh, going into humans and failing during this period and the, and the blood of patients is showing this record of having been infected, the virus is always also collecting mutations in the background. So one of the other things that happens is when the epidemic occurs and then you, you continue to have animal to human jumps, you see a lot of background diversity. So the virus looks very diverse as if it, as if it you know, came from a lot of different animals. Uh, again, SARS-CoV-2 is a singularity with that respect. Every case can be traced mutationally through that first patient at the People's Liberation Army Hospital, 3.4 kilometers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So we now have 163 million cases, uh, 1.6 million sequences, and they all degrade back to that first patient. Uh, singularity. That has never that has never before happened, and that is literally impossible to have happened by a natural process. Man is the only one that uses genetic material in pure form. Think of a vaccine. Every vaccine that every patient gets has exactly the same sequence down to every single nucleotide. That never happens in nature. Uh, I mean, you got a cornfield with every corn is genetically identical next to a woods where every tree is genetically different. That's nature. This is man. So, so that's number two is there's no uh, what's called posterior, biodiver posterior diversity. The, the virus was a pure culture when it started, which has never been seen before. The fear and cleavage site, of course, is a classic example. Oh, so I'm sorry, at, at this point in time, it could have been collected from nature and released accidentally. We can't tell the difference in that. So now let's go into some areas where, um, where it points more towards a laboratory. So the furin cleavage site um, is something that's never been found in a coronavirus before. Laboratories have shown since 1992 that it's the surest way to make something more infective, more transmissible, or more lethal, or all three. So there's a lot of evidence that that that, that furin cleavage sites are, are are good in the laboratory and and not present in nature for maybe lots of lots of complex reasons, but. Um, that's that's a strong argument of, of, of how you get something because the, the only way viruses can get things is to and is, is some poor animal, human or otherwise, getting two viruses at the same time. And then the viruses make mistakes and exchange exchange uh, uh, RNA between them. Um, so you can't get so SARS-CoV-2 couldn't get something that isn't out there in the world. Right. You, you can't get something that doesn't exist. So. The furin cleavage site is a is the name of four amino acids uh, in a protein, but they're represented by twelve nucleotides in the RNA code. Okay, so the 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 two arginines the, there are they're the letter R in uh, in a scientific paper, but they're the thing that the furin recognizes when it does its clip clip. So um, there are six different ways of coding for arginine in the genetic code. So each amino acid, each arginine, whatever glycine, you know, whatever it is, has three nucleotides that represent it. So, in, so for reasons that are probably, again, only God knows, arginine has six of them that code for the same amino acid. 
And different animals, different species, all use different, uh, different mixes of the six in different proportions. So for example, humans like to use the codon CGG for arginine. It's their favorite codon in a human cell, a mammalian cell. Uh, with coronaviruses, it's the worst. Coronaviruses hate CGG uh, and they never use it. They, are, they use it 3% of the time. If you put two of them next to each other, you got 3% by 3%, uh, you know, you got one in 1100 chance of that that happens from nature. Uh, and yet here it is, here it is in, in the virus. Now, one of the, one of the interesting, so again, let's think about this. You have two arginines, six choices. So that means there's 36 different combinations, right? In that spot. So one of the 36 was picked, CGG, CGG. Is there anything unique about that? Well, yes. There's a very common trick in the laboratory where you purposely put uh, a, a, a clipping site in your, in your scientific experiment so you can do a quick, easy, dirty, quick and easy dirty test to see whether the site has changed or not. So you put in the site that can be clipped by an enzyme and if the, if the, if the site stays there, then you know, down you know, two weeks from now, when you want to see if the site is still there, you don't have to sequence the whole thing. You just do this quick little experiment, and you see, okay, my site is still there because it was clipped by this enzyme. I dropped in there, um, and so CGG CGG, in fact, is the only of the thirty-six which has that property. So it, it clearly looks like something that the one Institute has used before, which is a which is a tool. For, for, for following something that you've put into a, into a virus. So when you, when you put something in, you wanna know it stays there as you do further experiments, because sometimes it gets kicked out. So this simple way. So that, that is probably, we don't know for sure, but that is an extremely good reason for why you would use the CGG, CGG, because it's the only one out of the 36 that has this ability. Uh, but in nature, it's one out of 1,100 in terms of choices. Um, and I've looked at 580,000 codons Luckily, my computer helped me look, but um, I never found a single example of a CGG-CGG pair in uh, any coronavirus. So again, there's no way for this to have happened, uh, you know, being dropped into uh, be, being dropped, you know, uh, into the virus. So, what would you say is the fourth best argument? Well, I think I think those are those are the those are the major ones. I, I think I think. Mm. Uh, there, there's some that are a little more scientific that we don't need to go into, but mm. I think I think the fact th th those really point to the fact that um, it didn't come from nature. Um, and I, there honestly, I'm not sure there is a single relevant fact uh, that is explained by a natural source that is not equally explained by a by a laboratory source. And there's you know lots of things that cannot be explained by a natural source. With the grant that was awarded to the Wuhan Institute of Virology by the National Institute of Health, who would have been responsible for assessing the risk before funding that project? Uh, there, there is, there is, with the moratorium, there was a committee set up inside the, uh, the NIH system. So um, they would have had to have decided, they would, supposedly it would have gone to that committee, would have been decided that, uh, that the risk benefit was appropriate. They would have checked the box, given it to EcoHealth and given it to WIV. Um, I, I'm a little, I'm a little concerned, and I and I will go back and, and investigate myself. When when uh, you know Dr. Fauci testified that uh, it wasn't you know, it wasn't gain of function research, and I think I think uh, Senator Paul tried several different avenues to to try to to get him kind of to understand better what he was saying. So 
I, I seems like the testimony would indicate that he may have a theory that it wasn't gain of function research. So um, I think, I mean, I, I'm going to have to remind myself of the grant because the grants are all publicly available, right? So I can, I can go back and look through it's, it's 80 pages as I remembered it. So I'll, I'll pour through it, but um, it certainly talked about all the things that fall in the category of gain of function. So well, well, how would you define a gain of function experiment then? Uh, a gain of function experiment is when you uh, purposely through either adding genetic material or through serial passage to, to let nature do a selection process uh, in which you purposely do an experiment in which you are trying to increase the infectivity, the transmissibility, or the lethality uh, of an existing virus. And Fauci is staunchly denying this, even though EcoHealth Alliance certainly was funding that and we're subcontracted by him. How would you go about generating a public conversation about the utility of gain-of-function experiments? Because that seems to me the, the most important thing right now is how do we get I mean, I think, how do we get everyone talking about it? Yeah, well, we're all we're all doing it sort of. Yeah, we're doing it one brick at a time, I guess, building a wall one brick at a time. Um, I, I think I think we just have to we have to just keep at it. Um, I think that um, I believe that either this week or next week or right now even uh, the WHO is having a, a health summit in Switzerland in which they're meeting, and I think on the agenda is you know what's step two of the of the investigation to the origin, because uh, as a minimum, it's clear that they did not come out with a conclusive conclusion about the origin. Uh, they rank ordered the, the likelihoods in a funny way, in my opinion. But nonetheless, um, so there, uh, I think I think the WHO needs to needs to take it to the next step. Um, I mean, I, I, obviously, it's 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 the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room. I mean, the uh, eight hundred pound elephant in the room. I guess it is. Um, the Wuhan Institute needs to open its records and they need to be examined in a forensic fashion so that either they see the records that have always existed or they see, they see a trail of records being removed, um, you know, mm. and, 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 and then that, that becomes the conclusion. I think it's more, yeah, it's more the latter. I'm kind of skeptical of the evidence even being available. And like, I assume the CCP has probably destroyed everything. Um, but then again, you know, there's yeah. a funny thing though. There's a funny thing in American law. So uh, not in criminal, but in civil law. Um, if you have documents that are pertinent to a dispute that you have with somebody and it's in the court system and that sort of thing, and you destroy the documents, um, the court can uh, of course find you in contempt and all those sorts of things. But the more important thing is the other party is allowed to uh, have a uh, to uh, allowed to assert a, what's called a negative inference. So they are allowed to basically present evidence that says, because you destroyed these records, I'm allowed to assume that they had records of the virus. Um, in an American court system, that would absolutely fly. So um, that, I mean, it's, it's an, not, investi an investigation still worth having then, because that might be discovered even if we don't discover direct evidence about uh, the Lablik hypothesis. Well, yeah, I mean, we have we have server records every hour for every hour for every day in 2019. And at 3 a.m. on September 19th, uh, 2019, the the, the 16,000 bat virus database went offline and it hasn't been back online since. Uh, they said it was because hackers because of COVID-19, but it's September 19th. So now they're not sure why they took it down. They and got caught in a little. Oh and that's, that almost backs up what uh, Dr. Redfield was saying, uh, the fact that they took it offline in September. Because he exactly. said, yeah. Uh, what would virology as a field of scientific research lose 
if gain of function experiments were banned? Like how much how much are gain of function experiments and the ability to do them a part of a, vir- a virologist's everyday professional life? Yeah, I'm not I'm not probably in a good position in a strong position to to answer that. So um, I mean if you if you <clears throat> if you divide virology up into understanding mechanisms of how viruses work, understanding the you know mechanisms of how they transmit disease. I mean, so so viruses are interesting because they teach us about all of biology, because biology is pretty much the same. So and they can be very convenient, uh, you know, uh, in terms of, of doing simple experiments. So um, that's one reason you use them. The other is, is to study existing viruses that cause existing diseases to try to figure out how to get treatments or therapies or vaccines and that sort of thing. Um, it actually, I think, I think the gain of function falls into a small subset of trying to get ahead of future pandemics. And I think we now have probably 10 years of, it's interrupted by the moratorium, but, but roughly at least 10 years of accumulated research on gain of function work in which I think we can say with pretty, pretty definitively that uh, there hasn't been anything learned by this research that has been helpful in the treatment of epidemic viruses. So, 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 so gain of function experiments have never preempted or prevented a virus. Not that I'm aware of, and, I, and I, if I'm wrong, um, I, I hope someone will, will will show me and correct me. But yeah, I, I don't think we've ever gotten ahead of it. And I, I've tried to quite quantify it for people to say one of the, one of the things you do when you do a gain of function research is you probably introduce a thousand or two thousand years of evolution into a virus in you know 2020, 2021. So to say you're getting ahead of the next pandemic, you're, you're kind of you're kind of creating an artificial thing. Well, it's it's two millenniums away. <laughs> So what do we, I don't really care about a virus that's two millenniums away. Tell me about a virus that's, that's two years away or three years away. And, and gain of function is much more, is much too crude for that finesse kind of, kind of work. Could you um, almost say then it would be a good idea to conduct gain of function experiments, but put a cap on how many mutations you can do to a virus. So say, uh, say you could, if we were going to do gain of function experiments, we would mutate them to how they would occur in the wild 10 years from now. And then when we get closer to like, and every year we do it an extra mutation so that we're 10 years of ahead of every potential, potential pandemic. Uh, but we're, we're not going to turbocharge them 2000 years into the future unless necessary. Do you reckon that would be a good idea? I think that's, I think that's an excellent idea. I hadn't, I mean, I had not thought of that myself. I think that might be a, a way, uh, it'd be an interesting way to kind of frame the work. I mean, for me, one of the proposals that, that I've made in, in my book that I wrote a year ago was uh, something sort of much simpler, which is, which is we, we know so little. So what you do is you set up a dormitory. So you want to have a gain-of-function lab, fine. Have a gain-of-function. It's in a building by itself. It's got a fence around it. Deliveries are really highly controlled. And anybody that works in there on gain-of-function has to live in a dormitory for two weeks afterwards. And if they don't get infected, then they can go out into the community and join their family and things. So a, a bit like submarine duty or going to Antarctica. I mean, it's uh, and that would and that would make it very simple. I mean, if you don't get sick in two weeks, you're probably not a spreader. And but it's um, bizarre. It's bizarre that that's not the precaution in the first place. Oh, I agree. I agree. And, and putting one institute next to Line Two in Wuhan, where a million people a day use the subway, and it happens to connect to the high speed rail station, and it happens to connect to the international airport that happens to go to 15 international cities every single day, is insane. That could be a yeah. That could be a good way of framing the argument then is to not completely get rid of gain of function experiments, but to just severely cap their capabilities. And yeah, that just seems like a no brainer. Why wouldn't you conduct these experiments in Antarctica or somewhere super isolated? 
rather than in a how many people are in Wuhan? Twenty million or something like that. Uh, there's eleven million in the in the uh, metropolitan area of Wuhan. Uh, Five hundred seventy people in, at the WIV, so it's a it's a big population. It'd be a big dormitory, uh, if I had to say that. But, um, but maybe not everybody's doing gain of. I mean, I don't know. It it, it seems like a pretty simple no brainer. And, I, and I, yeah, it's not my idea. So if if you're you know if you're one of these um, you know these people on the cutting edge and and you you know you're on that team that gets flown into Africa when a new virus comes out and kills an entire village, uh, that's exactly what you do when you get done with your field work. Is you go from your field work to an isolated hospital for two to three weeks and then back to your family. So um, we know how to do it with the unknowns. Um, I, I guess for some reason we don't think it's urgent enough to do it with gain of function. So just to crystallize the point, give me the best argument for and against conducting gain-of-function experiments. Uh, all of the arguments for it are theoretical and, and have not panned out. And uh, because of one lab leak, uh, one lab leak a year in general from, from infectious disease laboratories, <clears throat> that's not one lab leak from a gain-of-function laboratory. There are 20 or 30 is, is a number in the, in the whole world. So we're not talking about a lot of people doing gain-of-function research, but um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I have not seen any benefits and, and the risks are pretty high. So the arguments against it are tangible, 3 million deaths, and the arguments for are completely theoretical. But has the COVID outbreak subdued or reinvigorated the scientific community's desire to conduct gain-of-function experiments? So uh, maybe not surprisingly, surprisingly to me, the, the hubris here, but um, uh, folks like, uh, like EcoHealth Alliance and, and others uh, are lobbying for not not having you know tens and fifty million dollar a year grants, but having billion dollar grants given to them to more extensively, uh, yeah, I know you're shaking your head, but more extensively uh, get into this to prevent the next one. So it's 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 remarkable. And see, in in, in that crazy. case, well, it's, it's crazy. A, it's of course. absolutely crazy. In, in that case, look at look at. Um, I'm all, so if there if there's a virus that has a 50% lethality rate as opposed to under 1% or something, and it's in a bat cave somewhere in the mountains of China or Laos or you know some 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 country somewhere, um, to me I'm going to want to just sort of leave it there. Kind of the last thing I want to do is go there, bring it back to Wuhan, uh, take the subway and the <laughs> take the high speed rail back with vials in my pocket, and then go to the lab and and play with it. Uh, because I've just I've just taken something in a in a bat cave that nobody's going to visit, or if, or if, or if ten people visit and five of them die, that's the end of it. Uh, and I brought it back to the you know World Trade Center. This is so even without gain of function. My point is even without gain of function, collecting wild viruses and bringing them to major metropolitan areas is probably not a good idea. Not a good idea. This is a really long boat, but I was thinking I was just really wondering why are the virologists wanting to reinvigorate this? these gain-of-function experiments. Is there a chance that, I mean, there's been a lot of people who have said that this pandemic has given the blueprint to uh, bad players in geopolitics, whether it be China or Russia. It's given them the blueprint uh, for how you can really, you know, crash economies uh, and attack them with uh, pandemics. Is there a chance that countries like America are now paranoid of them being aware of that. And for that reason, they think they need to put more money into gain-of-function research so that they can not preempt viruses in the wild, but preempt viruses being perpetrated by 
bad players? Well, so I, I, if I say back, which I think you're hearing is so that we would have a, a, a military laboratory conducting research to try to be predicting mm. the same research being done in a, in a, 100%, uh, yep. in one of our major competitors. Um, I mean, that's fair game, I guess. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm a scientist, so I'm not a, uh, you know, I don't have to be responsible for the military protection of, of America. So in, in that context, if Russia and China and you name another bad actors are doing it, we probably need to do it too. Mm. But that's not in an, an academic setting. That's not in, a, in an NIH laboratory. That's in Fort Detrick or someplace like that. Well, what do you think motivates virologists to want to keep gain of function research going then? Is it just the excitement of playing God? It's hard to get into there. It's hard to get into people's heads. I think it's, uh, it is, I mean, it's pretty, I mean, I, so if you could imagine, <clears throat> if you imagine finding a sequence in, in bat feces, uh, you know, bat feces have been around for a couple hundred years because their original use was gunpowder, right? You know that. I didn't um, know that actually. Yeah. 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 They were, they were collected by, uh, you know, by the, by the folks back in, back in the, what, 17, 1600s. Uh, they were a major source of, of the, of the nitrogen base for, for, for gunpowder and other explosives. So, but if you can imagine being in a laboratory and taking some, some bat feces and until a few years ago, um, trying to grow viruses out of them and not being able to, uh, and saying nuts, I, you know, I know it's in there, but I can't find it. And then using, using some of this synthetic reverse biology to pull apart the pieces of the viruses in there grow them in E. coli or in yeast, and then reconstruct the virus and then rescue it from, from yeast cells. Uh, I mean, that feels pretty powerful. I mean, you're feeling really, really good about yourself. <laughs> it's, a, but, uh, it's a much less exciting so, field of research without gain-of-function experiments. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty exciting to be able to replicate what God can do. Changing gears a bit. Do the vaccines work against the variants of COVID of SARS-CoV-2? So I've done one analysis on that. So the, the way to think about it is that all of the vaccines are, are against the spike protein. Again, this, this protein that has the left side that interacts with ACE2 and the right side that comes apart and punches a hole and, and puts the RNA into your body. So um, <clears throat> that's that's where the that's where the action is. And so all of the vaccines are great related to that protein alone. Um, some, some immunologists did some really cool work where they basically tried to see, they tried to, they tried to make a uh, visualization system of what the immune system sees when it sees a spike protein. And what it sees, it sees four epitopes, four weird regions on the N-terminal of the S1 part of it. It, it sees four weird re regions on the receptor binding domain of the part of it, it doesn't really see any neutralize, there are really no neutralizing antibodies as you'd probably expect to the S2 segment. So remember a, a neutralizing antibody has to, you start with a virus, you throw your antibodies in there and they do what they do and then you see if the virus can infect. Neutralizing virus is one that can't infect when it does that. So if you're, if you're against the receptor binding domain, that makes total sense. If you're, if you're against the, the, the piece that's next to the receptor binding domain, you can make an argument of why that makes sense. If you're, if you're against the S2, which has nothing to do with the receptor binding, it's just involved with piercing it, you could say it's probably not gonna neutralize. If, if the virus gets near the, uh, 
near, near the ACE2, if it interacts with ACE2, the, the, the game's over, game's over. So there are four sites on the N-terminal domain and there are four sites on the receptor binding domain. So there are eight epitopes. So when you get a vaccine, you make eight classes of antibodies against it. Uh, literally any one of which is neutralizing in and of itself. They're going to scale a little bit, but they're all pretty good. They're all pretty darn good. Okay, let's let's go through the sequence of the India of the of the of the variant that's in India right now that's just blowing up the country there. Uh, and when you look at the mutations that it has, and you look at where they are in the spike protein, you and you you think you can estimate that three out of four antibodies in the N-terminal domain are still active. Three out of four antibodies in the uh, receptor binding domain are still active. So 75% of your vaccine antibodies are still neutralizing. That's way more than enough, way more than enough to, to get there. As, as, I, as I jokingly said on Twitter, when, when I was teaching at Stanford Medical School, 75 was a C, right? And not a very good grade. But in, but in, but in vaccines, it's pass, you know, it's pass fail. You live or you die. And 75% is, is way beyond passing. You probably have to get below 25% to really be to be, really be to say the vaccine is no longer doing anything worthwhile. And the correct me if I'm wrong, but the FDA's standard for whether they would approve a vaccine or not was 50% efficacy, wasn't it? So that's it's still more than uh, the the vaccines are still more than effective against variants in that context. Well, we're talking apples and oranges. So, so uh, effectiveness is the true clinical state. Do you get sick or do you not get sick? Do you get the infection or do you not get the infection? So it encompasses the whole, the whole mm. spectrum. I am just talking about having neutralizing antibodies. Right. So my estimate is that 75% of the vaccine antibodies that are, 75% of the antibodies generated by the vaccine are still neutralizing. Right. And to me, that's enough to, to stop the infection. But it doesn't correlate with the FDA standard of clinical 50% efficacy. Uh. Okay. okay. Different yeah, because because when I first heard that there were variants emerging, obviously as a layman, I was just I was paranoid that does that mean we're back to square one with the whole process of developing vaccines? But we're not, is what you're saying. We'll never be back to square one. We will always have something from it. Um, I mean, there's another aspect that is a bit annoying, but um, it is what it is, I guess. We have two major immune systems: the systemic immune system, which is uh, proteins called IgG and IgM, and when you inject something to make a vaccine, those are the classes of antibodies that you're primarily making. Now, the antibodies to stop an infection in the nose, the upper airways, the nasal pharynx, are a class of antibodies called IgA. You don't, you don't stimulate IgA to very, to very high extents with a systemic uh, vaccine. You need to do a nasal spray. Um, you, need to, you need to put the vac, you need to do the challenge where the cells that make the antibodies are, are in highest concentration. So, um, so this idea that people with the who are vaccinated can get a low-grade infection, they can maybe not know they're infected, they can maybe pass it on, is it, probably reasonably good science, unfortunately. And back to what we were saying at the start of this conversation as well. So just how effective are face masks? Well, face masks are really good at, 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 at droplets. Um, which are big and, and tend to fall within, you know, five to ten to fifteen feet from the from a person who's infected. So they're going to completely stop those. Uh, they're, they're reasonably good for uh, for aerosols. And so um, there's, as I you know, as I've tried to to help people people think about it. Um, there's there's I, I look pretty carefully at the risks of masks. The obvious one thing that people think about would be. Uh, does it decrease the amount of oxygen I get? Does it decrease the amount of ability to get rid of CO2? Does it does it harbor an infection right next to my mouth? 
no effect on oxygenation, no effect on, on getting rid of CO2. Maybe, maybe it, maybe a used mask. So if you use a mask for 10 days, uh, it's probably not a good idea. Uh, but a fresh mask every day is, it won't have that problem. So there's almost, there's no risk or as far as I can tell of wearing a mask. And if there's some benefit, I, I don't, I don't care to spend mm. my time quantifying it. Um, you know, if I was an academic and that was my way of getting tenure, I'd be writing papers about mask uh, efficacy. Um, I think it's there. I don't know. I can't quantify it and there's no risk. So uh, I highly recommend them. W wearing them in your car by yourself doesn't make sense. Wearing them outside, I'm not sure makes I've seen, sense. I've seen lots of people in uh, in cars driving by themselves with masks on. Symbolic gestures, I think, Stephen. Yeah, it's... it's Look at look at our. Uh, we're all scared. It's been a it's been a scary eighteen months, and fear is fear is a, uh, a dangerous confounder for cognitive dissonance and for good clear thinking. Aside from being vaccinated, what are some of the ways that people can guard themselves against COVID? The social distancing and, and the masking, as we've already talked about. So, um, but there's nothing else like uh, diet-wise. What vitamins should we be taking? Is there any other way that we can uh, help guard our immune system against this? No, vitamin D seems to have some. Uh, most of the studies show vitamin D has an uh, ameliorating effect. Um, I mean, I like I, I, I. You get you get vitamins from your food, but but um, vitamins are so cheap. As I say, the worst case, uh, you, you you know, if you if you if you take a vitamin and it, you know you excrete it in your urine, you've got expensive urine. But uh, so so taking a multivitamin is always a good idea. Uh, eating well, sleeping well, alcohol is bad for your immune system. So uh, um, yeah. Will the patent on the vaccines be made publicly available? Do you think? And should they? I be? don't know. I, I don't know. Um, I think that. Um, I have 87 patents and I've invented seven drugs. So I'm, I'm clearly of a mind that patents allow uh, innovation to be maximized is, is the best to maximize innovations. So <clears throat> I think the Western world is rich enough that there could, they could cut it. They could figure out how to uh, incentivize the companies to provide the vaccines either free or at a price that, that the rest of the world could afford. So um I, I don't like breaking something that's worked for a couple hundred years. So I'm, I'm uh, not in so, favor so, of that. So that's the argument against making it publicly available is that it, who's going to want to develop a vaccine if they know that it's going to be made free for everyone once they do. Yeah. 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 Right, awesome. Um, well, I think uh, we can, we can wrap it up there, Stephen, but uh, thanks again so much for coming on. Uh, really appreciate you doing the work you do and, making it understandable for uh, laymans like myself. So thanks a lot, Stephen, and uh, look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks. Yeah, let's talk again in a couple months. 